Life After Stroke is a production of the Hang On to the Dream Foundation, the 501c3 nonprofit organization that helps kids and adults reach their goals in life. If these Life After Stroke programs are helpful to you, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to the Hang On to the Dream Foundation to assist the organization in its numerous outreach activities. For more information, just go to www.hangontothedream.org. And remember, no matter how hard things seem, hang on to the dream. The following is a recorded program of an actual stroke support group. The comments expressed are the personal opinions of the participants and not necessarily the opinions of the producers, sponsors, or the broadcasters of this show. This program is not to be used as a way to diagnose or treat any medical condition that you may have. Please consult your doctor or healthcare professional before making any changes to your current medical routine. Stroke. 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 It comes out of the blue, sometimes without warning. But those who survive it should never lose hope. A stroke can be life-changing. But it is also a new beginning. Because for all survivors, there is still a beautiful life after stroke. Hey everybody, welcome to Life After Stroke. I'm Christopher Ewing. Today we're broadcasting from Home Base, which is Providence St. Joseph's Medical Center in Burbank, California. And with us today, we are very fortunate to have an outstanding, outstanding guest. Um, I heard him lecture about a month ago and I was like, okay, that's it. I got to get you on the show. His name is Dr. Jason Hinman. And Doc, why don't you brag a little bit rather than me try to give your whole list of accomplishments. Uh, Thanks, Christopher. Thanks for having me on. It's really a, a a pleasure, and this is a, such a valuable resource uh, for patients living with stroke to have available. Um, I am an assistant professor of neurology at uh, University of California, Los Angeles. Uh, been there, uh, did all my neurology training there, uh, specializations in stroke and recovery after stroke. Uh, and I run a small research laboratory that's focused on the interface between stroke, cerebrovascular disease, and dementia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in addition, I run several, or have participated in several clinical trials uh, aimed at understanding the role of stem cells in stroke recovery. Hmm. Well, you know, I'm going to kind of dive right into this because this whole thing of stem cell therapy just really fascinates me. And um, I'm going to kind of be like the kid in the back seat on their way to Disneyland and say... Doc, are we there yet? Uh, no, absolutely not. Mm. Uh, that's a common uh, misunderstanding, mm. and there's a lot of misinformation about stem cells out in the community um, online and various uh, resources that are available to patients after a stroke. Mm-hmm. We are just now beginning legitimate, uh, well-controlled clinical trials to understand the efficacy of this type of a treatment. Mm. Uh, so there should be no misconception or misunderstanding or a uh, false sense of hope provided at this stage. Mm-hmm. It's an attractive and emerging uh, possibility that we can repair the brain after stroke using uh, stem cells, but we have to prove that in mm-hmm. patients and make meaningful uh, advances in recovery for those individuals living with disability. Until mm-hmm. we prove that, uh, it's it's not something that is available just yet for patients. I see. When did it start to kind of come on the radar that stem cell therapy was even possible to be used on stroke survivors? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the first uh, challenge or observation that was meaningful uh, was maybe about 20 years ago when we started to really uh, understand the brain as, as not as static as we used to think of it as. 
the the old dogmatic thinking was that the brain uh, you know develops during childhood, and then you're essentially stuck with it. Uh, whatever is there is there. The circuits, the the cells. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there's an injury, it's permanent. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really wasn't true from observation of patients. But there was a disconnect between the science and the understanding at the at the cellular and molecular level of what's going on in the brain after injury and what people were seeing and experiencing after brain injuries. Mm-hmm. And as that. Uh, as those fields merged and we started to understand that in fact we could change the brain in fact the brain does change quite a bit after injury including stroke Uh, then it became clear that all we needed to do was develop appropriate strategies to modify that to augment that process Hmm. the brain has an endogenous or um, existing ability to repair itself but it's limited and if we understand what those limits are we can push them down and and push past it Mm -hmm. so um, uh, another key observation that's relevant to stem cell therapy was that the brain has its own stem cells and that they respond to and partially contribute to that normal repair process that, that all patients experience to somewhat, to some degree. Mm-hmm. And from there, it was a natural understanding that we could then try to use that therapy, modify it, twist it in ways that were, that might be helpful uh, and then the major hurdle that we're facing now is how do we actually do it? Where do we give them? How? When? Mm-hmm. Um, in what ways do we modify them? Uh, and a critical concern that uh, government regulatory agencies have is, is it safe? Right. You, you know, um, a shout out to a really great friend of mine, um, Dr. Cindy Grinds. You may recognize her name. She's one of the top cardiologists in the world. And um, I think it was around 2004, 2005, something like that. Everybody was saying, oh, did you see Cindy on television? And I was like, well, why was Cindy on television? And uh, she was on everything like CNN and CBS Evening News and everything else because she and her team performed the first stem cell transplant into a human heart following an accident that a young man had had. And it's a long story, but she was on Good Morning America and all this other kind of stuff. Um, I say all of that to say that Cindy explained to me exactly what the whole stem cell thing is and how you get them and where they come from and stuff like that. But for those who are listening who may not understand, you know, what stem cells are, where they come from and how you harvest them and everything else, um, kind of take us down that little layman's path of understanding. Well, sure. Thanks. Uh, so stem cells are, uh, can mean any number of things. The body has a rejuvenative ability. Um, things like uh, skin and the inner lining of our GI tract need to regenerate constantly. So there's a population of cells that exist in the body and regenerate and repopulate those tissues. The best example of this and where stem cell therapy has been in use for a long time uh, is in the bone marrow, where blood cells, red blood cells, white blood cells are made continuously by the bone marrow as a robust source of a, ste- a cell that can become any number of different types of, uh, uh, of blood cells. Uh, the understanding of whether similar cells exist in the brain is, I would say, still somewhat limited. Uh, it def- definitely exists in rodent models and smaller animal models. And the jury remains somewhat still confused about whether they actually are present in the human brain. It's not possible to observe them in the same way as we can in some animal models. So uh, we're left with, um, you know, post-surgical specimens from living patients that sometimes brain tissues removed for tumors or epilepsy or other things. Mm-hmm. 
and the questions are uh, we th- we think they're there, but we're not 100 percent sure that they're there and if they're in the same way. The cell retains its ability to become uh, in the in the truest form, um, say obtained from a fetus or developing embryo. Uh, a cell that could become any cell in the body. That it, it doesn't now, is, have the signals that drive it to become one particular type of tissue. Now, on that topic, it seems like I've heard that before, where it's like embryo cells are the best cells to use for something like this? Uh, I don't know that or, that's true in terms of a therapeutic approach. So, for for example, in, in, in blood disorders, we've used bone marrow-derived stem cells mm-hmm. uh, for a long time. And you can kill someone's bone marrow cells with chemotherapy and replace them with someone else's. It just seems like I remember reading something about where they were taking something from uh, um, umbilical cords or something like that. That's right. I see. So umbilical cord stem cells are very similar to fetal stem cells, we think, Mm -hmm. uh, in the way that they have the potential to develop into any different type of cell in the body. So you just kind of take it and smack it in there and... fill in the hole that's left or something like that? Well, or? the last uh, 10 or 15 years, we've understand, we under, now understand um, the molecular signals that tell a cell how to become what. And so what we can do now is take skin cells, mm-hmm. um, revert them back to a sort of embryonic stage, mm. and then tell them what type of cell to become by wow. providing particular clue, molecular uh, clues at different points mm-hmm. of their development. Hmm. Uh, and so for the brain, we think that cells that look like nerve cells or cells that look like the support cells of the brain called glia uh, might be the best. Uh, but there's ongoing stem cell trials in stroke for stroke recovery that are using bone marrow derived stem cells. Hmm. So I think the jury's out mm-hmm. on what type of cell um, uh, might be useful. Mm-hmm. Now, when you gave that excellent lecture, uh, like I may have said when we went on the air, I certainly said it before we went on the air, um, I met Dr. Hinman at an outstanding lecture that he gave at California Rehab Institute, which is um, the rehab hospital I was sent to after I had my stroke. And um, you had some really interesting research uh, data from, I guess, different groups that had done some you know, studies on the use of stem cells and stuff like that. And they were from like all over the world. Um, talk a little bit about some of that because you had a really great presentation uh, that talked about some of the successes, uh, you know, some interesting success rates, um, which keeps people going forward in this research. Right. So uh, I think, again, there are several important questions that that still need to be answered. So one is, um, what's the right time to give stem cells? Mm -hmm. Um, If if we're going to pursue that as a a therapy, what's the right timing? Uh, And I think um, since I'm in a room full of folks who've had a stroke, I I think that it's clear that the first 24 hours is probably not the right time. That's Mm. the time when you're getting acute care. You might be receiving blood thinning medicines if you're having an ischemic stroke. You might be undergoing a catheter-based thrombectomy procedure. If you've had a hemorrhagic stroke, you're under intensive blood pressure uh, uh, control, with usually with intravenous medicines. You might have to have um, a surgical procedure to remove the blood that's in the brain. So it's not the right time um, during those first probably 24 or maybe even 48 hours after a stroke to even think about recovery. At that time, what we're thinking about is, do we get blood vessels back open, stop bleeding in the brain, uh, make sure there's no swelling? So the right time then is probably no sooner than, say, let's say 48 hours after stroke. There haven't been any trials that have really addressed uh, before that. 
Uh, and so a group, it's a, a U.S.-based company, um, th- they're focused on using a bone marrow-derived stem cell product uh, that, uh, and then administering intravenously in the first few days after a stroke. Mm-hmm. That was my other question is, do you go into the vein? Do you go directly into the head? How do you... Yeah, so several different approaches there? have been tried. Um, the, the other major approach that's uh, currently being tried uh, was tried earlier um, uh, in the past couple years and is undergoing a continued study is uh, intracranial administration of, of stem cells right into the brain hmm. um, with the idea of what you're doing there is getting them as close as possible uh, to the area of injury mm-hmm. and the site of recovery. Um, it's not clear whether stem cells administered intravenously can make their way into the brain. That's unclear. We don't mm. have a good way of tracking them. Uh, there are some efforts to to do that using um, basically m- making them uh, have a small magnetic signal so that we can see them on an MRI scan, for example. But that uh, that work is not ready for prime time clinical use yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so. The, the shortcut around the, the blood-brain barrier getting access to the brain is to uh, just put them straight into the injury site. Hmm. Uh, and that's been tried. Um, a major trial that we participated in at UCLA uh, and I think several other places are, around Los Angeles participated in was uh, called the Actissima trial. That uh, was a sponsored trial from a company called Sanbio and a joint venture with a Japanese company called Sanuvian that have um, a stem cell product they were interested in testing. Uh, They administered uh, intracranial implantation of stem cells in the brain uh, in about 150 patients. The formal results are not out yet, but um, it did prove to be a very safe procedure. Uh, So in in those 150 patients, I think there was less than 5% of of significant uh, adverse or or significant side effects. Um, And, the degree to which that helped recovery uh, is uh, still unclear. We'll have to see what the official results look like. Um, the point of the trial was to show that, on the surface, this somewhat radical procedure is safe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Man, this is so heavy. Um, you know, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, I know I have a couple of questions for the doctor, and I'm sure that some of our uh, stroke survivors here do as well. Uh, one of the questions I have is, are there any particular deficits that stem cell therapy will not work on? And what type of stroke survivor is best in some of this um, therapy? Uh, ischemic stroke survivors, hemorrhagic stroke survivors, is there a difference as to what uh, type of stroke you had um, that may benefit best from stem cell therapy and things like that? So um, we'll get those answers from you right after the break. Life After Stroke is brought to you by Audible. With over 180,000 audiobook titles from new releases to bestsellers, you can listen to Audible on your computer, iPhone, Android, or Kindle whenever and wherever you want. Plus, just for being a listener of Life After Stroke, our friends at Audible are giving you a free audiobook of your choice and a 30-day free trial of their service. To get your free audiobook, just go to www.audibletrial.com forward slash life after stroke. That's audibletrial.com forward slash life after stroke. 
Hey everybody, this is Christopher Ewing from Life After Stroke, and there is something new we're launching that we are very excited about. We are launching the Life After Stroke online support group. This is a weekly support group that is held online for those who don't have access to a support group in their area or who are unable to attend a support group because of physical limitations. The group meets each week online at www.thestrokechannel.tv or on the strokechannel.tv app and is open to stroke survivors as well as caregivers. For more information and to sign up to be a part of this really cool online support group, just go to www.thestrokechannel.tv. That's thestrokechannel.tv. And I'll see you soon during the Life After Stroke online support group. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Life After Stroke. I'm Christopher Ewing. Today, our guest is Dr. Jason Hinman. He is an outstanding authority when it comes to stem cell therapy in the world of stroke and things like that. You know, one of the questions I had, Doc, is it seems like a lot of research centers around ischemic stroke survivors and not so much with hemorrhagic stroke survivors like myself. Um, So I'm going to selfishly ask, is that something that is just kind of part and parcel to research itself in the stroke world. It just seems like I remember even um, listening to some of the the data that you presented in your presentation that a lot of it, uh, a lot of these other groups that were doing some of these, these research studies all did them with ischemic stroke survivors and it all kind of cut off at like the 12 month period, you know, stuff like that. Um, Why is that? Well, one uh, somewhat frustrating aspect as an, as an academic is that, um, you know, because I see all types of patients uh, after stroke and the issues that they're dealing with um, often do directly relate to the type of stroke they initially had. The challenge with this type of emerging uh, therapy is that um, the drug companies are the ones that that the pharmaceutical companies and and, um, stem cell therapy companies are the ones that are really driving Mm -hmm. um, the the research at this stage. And the reason for that is it's really expensive. The trials take uh, up to, you know, uh, typically following one patient for six months, sometimes a year to get enough patients. Um, it's uh, usually takes two to three years to do a study across multiple sites. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, so their motivation then, um, which is not, you know, gets a bad reputation, but is realistic is that they're trying to develop a product that then can reach the most number of patients. Mm-hmm. And since 80% of patients suffer an ischemic stroke, mm-hmm. uh, that's the major focus of the research. Uh, you asked before the break a question about the types of deficits that are most uh, studied or most likely to benefit. And um, it's not clear that they're most likely to benefit, but the ones that are most studied are motor recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the ability to move um, mostly because we have pretty good scales for measuring those things. So it's easier to put, uh, they're still flawed, but it's easier to put objective measurements on them mm-hmm. uh, in terms of whether patients are getting better. Can they do things that they couldn't previously do, like you know, walk 10 meters faster than they used to, for example? Or um, the, another test that's commonly used involves grasping and handling small objects with their hand and there's a, you know, well-validated scoring system for that, that then can be used to judge whether the treatment is efficacious between two different groups, for example. Mm -hmm. So that's going to continue to be the most fertile ground for this type of research. And uh, I think the idea is that we can't do right now much of anything to make people better in any domain, cognitive or motor, Mm -hmm. whatever. So, 
let's start with the easiest ground truth of mobility. Mm -hmm. And then if we can improve mobility in some way, then we can start to study whether there's effects on cognition or other things of that nature. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, you guys in your group are doing some really dynamic uh, research and studies and things like that. Uh, brag a little bit. Tell sure. Well, so you're up to. so you know, as um, part of the work I do is is running the, is running the stem cell trials, and we're engaged now in a, in a trial called the Pisces Three, which is just now starting. I think we're ready for an open for enrollment. Um, you can uh, search it on the web. It's easy to find. That's actually how you get, uh, how your eligibility is determined for the trial. And we're happy to, to help you through that process if you're interested. Um, and I think maybe we can put my contact info somewhere mm -hmm. o online or mm -hmm. something like that. Um, but my research group um, is primarily focused about at the interface between stroke and cerebrovascular disease and and cognitive impairment or dementia and increasingly hmm. we we now recognize that the the vascular tree of the brain probably plays a very significant role in uh, the molecular events that ultimately lead to alzheimer's disease and, and cognitive impairment whether it's purely due to stroke or whether there's some overlap between hmm. those pathologies that we associate with, with that type of dementia and uh, and the, the primary stroke injury or the vascular injury that happens to the brain if you have, say, longstanding hypertension. So is that to say that somebody that has a stroke is more likely to develop dementia than another person who didn't have a stroke? Yeah, that's clear. It's about a one and a half times, a little bit less than one and a half times risk of developing dementia. Hmm. Um, it varies depending on your racial ethnicity, um, where you live in the country, access to health care. Um, but uh, all comers, it's about uh, 1.4 risk, uh, so about a 40% increased risk of developing hmm. dementia if you've had a stroke in the past. And we don't understand that process. The, the uh, National Institutes of Health is just now launching a major initiative uh, that will run through a network of hospitals that they've organized over the last five or ten years uh, to study stroke. Um, the last five or ten years have been focused on new and emerging treatments for stroke, and that's been fairly productive. We, as you know, we have had some major advances in the acute treatment of stroke, such as thrombectomy. Uh, but what we don't understand is very much about is what happens to patients after that. And so um, the NIH is starting a major initiative. It should be active and functional later this year uh, to really get some more granular detail on what's happening to patients. Mm -hmm. um, and the goal is to study upwards of uh, six to 8,000 patients after stroke wow. across the country uh, and learn something about, particularly about their cognitive impairments, but also, uh, you know, we'll, we'll also be able to learn where are they going? Uh, how long are they staying in rehab? Um, you know, uh, what are the risk factors that, that, that really drive the increased risk of, of say cognitive impairment or dementia after the stroke. Hmm. So that'll be, I think, really helpful to understanding some of the, the harder to get a grip on domains like, you know, memory, cognitive function, getting back to work, those types of things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now with your Pisces three, is that what it's called? That's correct. Your Pisces three study. What are you guys finding preliminarily um, at this point? Well, the, so th this version of the trial is just getting underway. So mm -hmm. um, we at UCLA haven't enrolled any patients yet. Um, nationally, I'm not aware of the current enrollment. Um, there was a prior version of this study. Um, it's being sponsored by a UK company that has a, um, a fetal stem cell product uh, that they are uh, hopeful about. Um, in the earlier version, referred to as Pisces 2, 
Uh, there was some hint of a success um, in terms of patients who had some motor ability after their stroke um, and received the treatment. They were about 30% more likely to get some uh, improved mobility on the, the types of scales we talked about, mm-hmm. mostly upper limb uh, mobility. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's given them enough um, uh, head of steam to move forward to a broader trial and bring it to the U.S. to try to get FDA approval. So yeah. that's the plan. You know, that's my other question was, you know, what has given people like yourselves, uh, you know, doctors like you, um, enough of an interest to think, hmm, you know what, there could be something to this stem cell stuff. Where did the smoke originally come from that people even thought that this was possibly something that was going to work? Well, like with um, many other examples, um, including various types of drugs, there have been some dramatic successes in animal models. Mm-hmm. Primarily just with animals yeah, that they've seen. Yeah, so-called this. the preclinical models of stroke uh, that have shown uh, fairly robust results. But we can cure a stroke in a, in a mouse or a rat um, and none of the, with drugs, and none of those drugs have translated into human research. Hmm. I think that um, into one human th- research or human benefit, they've translated into human research and all failed almost hmm. universally. Now, and, why would that be? Well, one of the reasons uh, I think that's become clear to me over the last uh, three or four years is that um, there hasn't been enough attention paid to the uh, types of diversity. Uh, that exists when you study humans between that come from different ethnicities. A mouse and a human, or something. exactly. When we do a preclinical study on a drug, give it to um, you know perform strokes in animals, and then give half a drug and half a saline or some placebo of, mm-hmm. uh, a treatment. Um, almost all the mice are they're actually related to each other. Uh, hmm. They're bred in a way that they're often cousins or second mm-hmm. cousins, and so you really don't have much of the kind of diversity that we see at the human level. So that's being recognized. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also an idea that, uh, you know, one thing we commonly do in clinical trials is often get patients from different hospitals, often in the same area, sometimes around the country, sometimes around the world. Every place has slightly different habits and Mm -hmm. things are different in ways that are very difficult to control for. And so um, there's been a movement, uh, reversing that back to the preclinical studies in animals, can we do that in the animals? Can we use different types of animals, mm-hmm. different so-called strains that are have different genetic backgrounds? Can we do it in different laboratories around the country? Yeah. Everyone's getting the same drug, but uh, we're trying to develop an, a system that mimics the clinical trial experience just in, in the drug discovery phase. Yeah. You know, here's a question for you. Why was it decided that mice would become kind of the barometer for what would work in humans. I mean, are we even that even remotely close bodily to a mouse to be able to know that? No, uh, I think that, so they're, uh, were they just so insignificant because they're mouse, let's just use them. <laughs> yeah. A lot of drivers for that. But mm. um, one is that they're fairly cheap. Right. Um, the second is that um for some reason, they became a good model, and we learned a lot about their genetics, which mm-hmm. made it easy to study how different genes or molecules manipulate different genes or molecules in a way that we can learn something about those. And they do share a fair amount of genetic information with mm-hmm. humans um, being in the mammalian tree. 
but from a brain standpoint, um, there are several significant limitations. Yeah. One, their brain isn't folded the way ours is, mm. um, so that's a significant difference. Um, the second is that their uh, their blood flow system is actually substantially different than the human um, in terms of the amount of blood flow. Uh, the uh, redundancy of the blood flow is different. Um, how the brain reacts if you block a, an artery, for example, mm-hmm. is totally different in, in both mice and rats than it is in, in humans. Um, most drugs that end up making it into an early clinical trial at some point get tested in primate models. Yeah, um, but those say. are very expensive. Um, there are issues around ethical human re- mm. uh, ethical primate research sure. um, yeah. that are that are addressable but but real Mm. uh and so you know oftentimes particularly for diseases where there currently is no therapy sometimes making that jump from a lower animal uh directly to humans seems reasonable to everyone i mean it just seems like you're using the wrong example you know if you're if you can cure stroke not just make it you know a little better but actually cure a stroke in a mouse and then when you apply it to a human you can't even get close Right. Seems to me you're using the wrong animal to yeah. try to test, you know, for something with stroke. Is there a better animal that you think would be, you know, I hate to, you know, be an advocate for using animals, you know, I mean, but I guess, yeah, it's a whole other show. Um, you know, is there a better animal to use? Well, I think some, one of the things, and the, one of the things my research group has focused on is whether we can try to mimic some of that diversity that we see in, in patients. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what happens if you put a stroke in an animal that is pre- predisposition to get Alzheimer's disease, for mm-hmm. example, like some of our patients are. Mm-hmm. But what if you put a stroke in an animal that is overweight or has diabetes or has high blood pressure, the way most of the patients that are walking in the door with stroke um, ha- have had those problems and often for a long time. So I think some clearer understanding of uh, what, what we're actually seeing at the bedside uh, and then trying to model that uh, in the preclinical models is probably the right approach. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. Well, I know that there's a number of people here that have questions, so um, we're going to take another quick break and we're going to get to those questions. So everybody sit tight. We'll be right back. Life After Stroke is part of the iHeartRadio Podcast Network. Search and follow Life After Stroke on iHeartRadio or subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts so that you never miss an episode. Also, be sure to download the new StrokeChannel.tv app, available free from Google Play or the iTunes App Store. Hey, this is Christopher Ewing, and if you live in the Houston area, don't miss the 2019 Abilities Expo, August 2nd through the 4th in Houston, Texas. The Abilities Expo is a nationwide trade show dedicated to highlighting products geared to those who may have a physical disability or motor function impairment. Abilities Expo brings exhibitors from around the world all under one roof, allowing visitors to see up close some of the wonderful products that are out there that can help make life easier. Admission to the Abilities Expo is free, and the Life After Stroke radio show will be broadcasting throughout the entire weekend from the StrokeChannel.tv booth, so be sure to stop by and say hi. I'd love to meet you guys. And if you live outside of the Houston area, the Abilities Expo is held all across the country, so chances are it'll be coming to a city near you. So just go to www.abilities.com for upcoming expo dates and for more information. And I look forward to meeting you at the upcoming Abilities Expo August 2nd through the 4th in Houston, Texas. 
Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Life After Stroke. I'm Christopher Ewing, and our guest today is Dr. Jason Hinman, and we have a question. I have had two carotid artery strokes, one in the morning and one at night. Uh, nine years ago, I, I know I, uh, no stem cell research was done with me. But I've written four books and have five or six more to go. And I have been better cognitively Oh, yes. Cognitively after the stroke are better and better and better. I don't know how you explain that. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's an excellent question. I think. Um one of the keys that I usually advocate in my patients to help promote their recovery, whether they're eligible to participate in research or not, uh, is uh, what I call task-based practice. Uh, I ask patients typically to make a list of two or three things that they have trouble doing after their stroke. At the beginning, that's often simple things like getting out of bed mm-hmm. uh, or walking you know, to the bathroom. As you get further away from your stroke, deeper into your recovery, uh, that list can change to mm-hmm. things like getting back to work, right. being productive, um, et cetera. And so I usually ask them to make a list of those three things and then uh, figure out how they can practice those things. What and then pra- about if they can't make a list? How can, how can you not make yeah. a list? I, uh, my right hand doesn't work. Oh, well, and like a mental I list. I am right-handed. And you write all those great books, Dr. Parker. You can make a list. Just type I it out. I can make a list on the computer, but not, uh, uh, not a list by hand. Well, sure. I think that's what Dr. Hinman's saying, though. You just kind of make a mental list of all the things that you want to try to accomplish, and then you just kind of go at it, you know, and start checking boxes. And what I typically advocate is then to approach those things the way you would um, do at the gym, for example. If you want your biceps muscle to be bigger at the gym, you have to do curls with a weight to to test the muscle and make it stronger. Mm -hmm. And the way you do that is you don't go once and do one curl and then come back a week later. You go and you do 10 at a time and then you take a short break and you do 10 more at a time and then you go to the gym three days a week or more and you get stronger over that period of time. So if you have a list and an approach like that and then find something you can do to practice that repetitively, uh, it, it can often be very helpful because that's the way the brain works, just like yeah. a muscle. It has a and circuit. Th- that's right. And if you work out that circuit, make it active, mm-hmm. then it's more likely to become a permanent and stronger circuit. Kind of like how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, 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 Exactly. Right? Yeah. And so it can be overwhelming after a stroke when you have, you know, you can't get up out of bed or go to the uh, bathroom. But Yes. Br- I couldn't walk. I couldn't talk. 
I couldn't swallow. And and so obviously, you know, you oftentimes the earliest phase, you need the help of rehabilitation specialists to help you sort of work through those things mm-hmm. that you were taking for granted before the stroke. As you get further on or deeper into your recovery, and obviously you've made an excellent one, and as you pointed out, cognitively, you feel like you're even better than you used to oh, be. Oh, yes. Um, and I would argue that's because you've been able to focus on those activities, maybe more so than you were before, uh, with, uh, and, and because of that dedicated effort, you've, you've seen improvement and, and maybe even productivity. Now, you know, I'm going to say this, you know, because I, when I first had my stroke, I heard that, you know, there's like that three-month window and then that six-month window and then that one-year new normal, that's what you get and you don't throw a fit and that's it. And through doing, you know, all these shows and meeting all these stroke survivors and stuff like that, I have not met one, even to this day, I've not met one stroke survivor that has told me that, yep, at the one-year point, that's what I had, and now I'm three, four, five, ten years in, and I ain't got one bit more than I had in one year. Um, tell me what where you're at on that. I mean, so, I mean, doctors notoriously are really bad at even predicting things we, you would think are as simple as life expectancy. Mm-hmm. Um, we're probably way more horrible than that <laughs> on things like you pointed out, re- recovery mm-hmm. after stroke. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the rubric that you mentioned is the one that is sort of taught and expected. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's not the one that we observe, uh, as you pointed out. Is it and because they don't research these survivors long enough? What? That's part of it. Yeah. Uh, that's okay. definitely part of it. We don't know very much. It, it mm-hmm. is hard to, to do that research because, um, uh, patients often dissipate across different mm-hmm. care settings and things like that. So that's one big challenge that's decreasing as we have increased contact through, social media, email, Mm -hmm. telemedicine, Mm -hmm. we can stay in touch with people. And so I think that'll change. Um, The other thing is that I think the reason that rubric exists is because people are uh, generally, most doctors are thinking about the basic recovery things. And at a year, most patients have gotten back on average 60% of their function. And that's not a really domain specific uh, estimate. So the things that people are struggling with are the ones that are much harder to measure. Back mm-hmm. to work, cognitively intact, memory, uh, social engagement. They're, they're less often walking, moving. You've compensated, usually, if you have a persistent disability, but those other things are much harder to measure and, and even advise patients on what it is to do that's mm-hmm. the right thing. And I think it varies very much from patient to patient. And so that's why I advocate for that sort of personalized mm-hmm. task-based list. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you're struggling with. Mm-hmm. We can talk about it in, for 15 minutes in clinic, but mm-hmm. you live with it. Make a list. Figure out what it is that you can do, that, that what you're having trouble with on that list, and then come up with some task that can help you practice mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And in some cases it can be very challenging if it is, you know, you want to go back and write a book or, um, or, you know, or, or do voiceover if that's, if your voice mm-hmm. is affected. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are ways to practice that and practice will get you, uh, improvement. Absolutely. It may not be a hundred percent, but it's the only way to repair the brain. Sure. Mm-hmm. Sure. Good point. Good point. Gene, you had a question. Thank you. You're welcome. It's more than the two questions now. First of all, uh, stem cell is not necessarily the same. So which stem cells are you talking about? 
Yeah, so I mentioned earlier there's there's uh, some con- some uh, different approaches that are being tried currently. Uh, uh, the because most of the research is industry sponsored, they often will not give precise details about their product. The same way a company you know developing a drug might not share the chemical structure of that drug until they get a product to market. Um, the current approaches that are in use um, in, in research are uh, a bone marrow-derived stem cell product, a, a stem cell product that is um, uh, from bone marrow but modified in an important way to make it more supportive for the brain. Uh, and then the third is a, a fetal stem cell product uh, that is, again, modified in a way that, that uh, the company believes is supportive for, uh, for the brain. Now, uh, as far as therapy with the center, you talk about putting it in a blood vessel and also you talk about working in the brain, which is best for each application. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's not clear. I think the, the intravenous administration is likely to be m- much safer. Um, the... Uh, well, the risk of uh, what, what you can say now, uh, what the the risk of uh, side effects or adverse events with the intracranial or inside the head treatment uh, was low. It was not as low as the one observed um, uh, with, with intravenous treatment. So there's definitely some risk, but that risk is fairly minimal. On the, on, on the spectrum of neurosurgical procedures, it's quite minimal. Uh, when you go vascular, you don't really know where the center goes, do you? Uh, no, you don't. Uh, that's a, that's an important thing. And and right, again, right now, the current approaches have been um, have been to do it in, intravenously through the elbow vein, the way you might get a blood draw when you go to the, to the doctor's office. Um, as you know, many patients uh, for stroke are now getting intravascular procedures where a catheter is being snaked up into the brain right. blood vessel to remove an obstructing clot, for example. Mm. Um, maybe, maybe the right treatment is to give the stem cells mm-hmm. right then and there when the catheter is right there inside mm. the brain where you're, you're, you're as close to the brain as you're going to get. While in you're in there, the shoot some stem cell in there. Huh? So mm. it's unclear. That approach is, has been tried in some preclinical uh, models. Um, hasn't made it to clinical trial research yet, but um, is an attractive possibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second question is, because of the uh, research required, you have to avoid the double-blind study. So what do you do now? Yeah, that's been an important consideration um, and a limitation of the early advances uh, in the field, which is that um, particularly in, in the procedures where stem cells are being given intracranially inside the head, uh, that type of a procedure um, it's very difficult to blind for. Um, and the blinding is important because it's how we know that the, actually the treatment had the effect, not going to the operating room, not getting the extra medical attention or the post-operative care, but just the treatment. And so the way that's been tackled is to ask patients who are in the control arm to, to do all those things, to go to the operating room, to have a, uh, uh, go, undergo the pre-surgical preparation, undergo a thin, uh, you know, shaving of the scalp, a, a thin um, a skin incision, then a, 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 
incomplete hole in the skull um, and and then stop. Uh, whereas the, the patients who are receiving treatment would have all that, except they would have a full hole placed in the skull and then a needle administration of the cells into the brain. But uh, when the patient wakes up, they, they don't know what happened. So that is, although um, a big ask of patients participating mm-hmm. in the you research. You have a hole put in your head and nothing put in there. Mm. Uh, is, is it really just unfortunately a very essential part of making sure that this treatment actually you know, has the intended effect? Mm-hmm. And so we really have to do, that, do the research in that way in order to make it uh, fruitful. Hmm. And I think that's a good transition to something, uh, Christopher, we talked about earlier is yeah. that there's a lot of misinformation about stem cells. And as we said, we said at the very beginning of, uh, of the podcast that uh, there are no uh, approved treatments right now. It's under active research. So why do you hear that there are people who are actually getting this type of procedure done? And are they getting it like where people get Botox and crazy stuff, like some of these little boutique thing in their basement or what? In, indeed. I hope they're not getting it in the basement. But mm-hmm. there, uh, there are some uh, so-called stem cell clinics. I okay. think they popped up mostly in the big cities. Mm-hmm. Los Angeles is one place where that type of boutique treatment is, is mm-hmm. definitely available. Um, I've heard of patients traveling to Mexico where there's less regulation about mm-hmm. treatments. Um, but I can tell you that internationally there is not, there isn't an approved treatment. So if you're doing that, there often those places are looking for your money. Um, oftentimes mm. they're advocating a procedure that is simple. So we know how to get stem cells out of the bone marrow. You do mm-hmm. a hip bone marrow aspiration, like we've been doing for cancer treatment for almost 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, that medical procedure is, is easy, to, fairly easy to do, somewhat uncomfortable, but easy to do. And oftentimes what the clinics are doing are spinning those cells down and putting them back in your body. I don't so know what just that's supposed it. to do. Yeah, right. You're just putting it back in. I yeah. don't know what that's supposed to do for your recovery. Um, I know mm. what it does for patients' wallets, which yeah. is make it quite lighter. And, uh, and, I, and I think if it's not done in a very reputable way, there's definitely potential risk for that. The more dangerous things that I've heard about or uh, s- similar types of procedures uh, where patients' stem cells are withdrawn from their own body and then... Uh, injected into, say, their uh, their spinal fluid through a spinal tap. Oh, There's been a few reports of cancers developing that mm-hmm. way, um, and so I would I would definitely avoid uh, any type of stem cell research that is not uh, sanctioned by. Um, by the NIH, and there's a good way to find that. You go to clinicaltrials.gov and mm-hmm. type in the name of the investigator, the name of the hospital, the mm-hmm. name of the study. Uh, and you can find the legitimate registered information so about the research. Let me go here. I remember meeting a stroke survivor who was told that she would be a good candidate for stem cell therapy and things like that. And, you know, when you're a stroke survivor and you're looking at limbs that, you know, you're staring at a limb that's just staring back at you and not getting it to move and you're dangled this, you know, shiny object that says, hey, I've got this magic cure that will help that move again. You know, you're really filled with hope. Um, If somebody at this point in where we're at, if somebody dangles that type of hope in front of you, is there a reason to really be hopeful? Like, okay, this could be, or we, are we just not that close yet? Like, it's not time to get excited that we're that close to Disneyland because we're not there yet. I, I, I think we're not there yet. I think there's reason for hope that in the broad scope that this type of treatment um, can produce effective treatments for recovery after stroke. 
but they need to be studied in the right way, validated, and so that they're available to the widest group of individuals. But if somebody when, dangles in front of you right now that they've got a clinic over on Main Street over here and come on by, put you down for 2 o'clock. No, no. I, I would not engage in that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so yeah. that's what I was saying. You know, so now we're we're on the road. We're headed somewhere. How long until we're there? Do you think? How much longer do you think we've got, Daddy? Yeah, <laughs> you know the the most uh, um, liberal estimate I could give would be six years. Really, I think that would be the absolute earliest that mm. we would see FDA approved stem cell treatments. And so, like my friend who I met at this drug support group, who was told that there was this stem cell therapy thing that's going on and stuff like that. If someone is a stroke survivor and they're presented this opportunity, I mean, you just said, you know, I probably would do it. Um, but should they even look into it, entertain it, or are we just simply just not even close enough to even think that there's anybody that could really be of any benefit in that department yet? We're not there yet. Okay. Yeah, I, I wouldn't think that that type of a, a treatment would be would be effective and potentially could be dangerous. Okay. And everybody listening, the only reason why I kind of wanted to keep going down that path a little bit is because I hear that come up often, and that's why Dr. Hinman's here today. And, you know, a lot of you might be approached with this kind of stuff. You might get literature in your email. You might, you know, all this stuff. And, you know, I mean, here's a doctor that's over at UCLA, you know, doing this stuff day in and day out. I mean, he kind of knows how close we are. And, you know, I would much rather say trust him than, you know, some email that comes through, you know, at the same time that says some prince over in some uba booba country has $30 million and all they need is your social security number to get it out. You know, I mean, because that's the kind of stuff, you know, you'll get on these mailing lists, you, you know, once they know that you're on that, that stroke path, you know, I get all kinds of emails now about stroke and stuff like that. And, you know, it's not to question the validity of any of it, but. You know, when you're a stroke survivor, and again, you know, you're kind of at a rock and a hard place. I mean, you'll kind of believe anything that's coming down the road smoking. And, um, you know, you certainly don't want to get into a situation where they're taking more than just your money. I mean, they could be taking your life. I mean, like you said, you know, there's been cancer situations and stuff like that that have come up. The, the other thing I would say is that uh, I, I would... We're definitely interested in per- in having folks participate in research. We're desperate for them. That's my next and question. How I do think we do that, that you you definitely shouldn't wait mm-hmm. for you know to reach that one year plateau and say then what do I do? Mm-hmm. Because the most of the fertile research is happening. Uh, we want patients in the first year when their normal recovery process is happening. We want to help that. So, is so, there any detriment if somebody wants to get in on some of this research? Is it going to make them any worse if they're well, used as guinea? Uh, there's always that potential, but mm. most trials are designed to have safety at the forefront. Mm-hmm. So, there's always that potential on an individual case basis, but in general, there the the tr- the research is designed to be safe and mm-hmm. to value safety. Um, as as a foremost consideration, and then secondly, the efficacy. Um, so I think that's the you know not a not a major concern. Yeah, I'm a but huge we, huge advocate for getting involved in people's yeah, research we, studies. Yeah, we we want you to come and participate. So I think it's a very challenging period after your stroke. You're you're often seeing you know you go from having one regular doctor to now having seeing a bunch of doctors in the hospital then sort of having more doctor's visits than you ever thought you needed <laughs> mm-hmm. in the first few months. You, you maybe wanted to go to rehab. Mm-hmm. And then you identify maybe oftentimes you have more problems than you knew you had, mm-hmm. some diabetes. You have, maybe you have to see a cardiologist for AFib. Uh, but 
the time to start pushing for help and recovery is is as soon as you get out of rehab mm-hmm. um, and and say ask your doctors what research is going on um, at various hospitals around the city mm-hmm. what can I do to participate how do I get involved the more you push them the easier it is for them to go and say hey I have interested patients let me find out and what if somebody is outside of the hospital maybe not outside the one year window but they're you know, kind of post-stroke, maybe let's say six months or something, um, is there a, a safe place that they can go to look into being a part of a research study? I know you'd mentioned one. Yeah, so clinicaltrials.gov is the mm-hmm. mo- probably the most accessible. Okay. Um, it's not a particularly user-friendly website, but mm-hmm. if you type in um, a few magic words, uh, for example, you might type in stroke and Los Angeles, mm-hmm. uh, you'll find the available clinical trials that have anything to do with stroke. Um, that are in this area. Okay. Uh, so it's a very useful resource from that standpoint. And of course, you can. Uh, I'm happy to have you check our website. Well, I was going to say because uh, I know you and love you. You know, tell everybody yeah. how they can find you and right. Stuff. So um, if if you go to neurology.ucla.edu on the web, you can find information about the clinical trials, not only for stroke but for all uh, trials that UCLA is participating in for any neurologic disease. Uh, we have. The UCLA Stroke Center has a Facebook and Twitter page um, at UCLA uh, Stroke, uh, and you can find us on the web, and there's information about um, uh, our faculty are putting up information about breaking news in the fields um, that that might be relevant, or uh, we'll also eventually be posting clinical trials availability there for various types of things. Uh, so there's, there's definitely resources out there to, to get more information. Since we are still, you know, in your opinion, five, six years at least out before, you know, we can say we're there, um, what do you think are some of the best things that a stroke survivor can do to, like, I know one of them you said was practice and things like that, but um, what what really should stroke survivors really be focusing in on the most strenuously, religiously, like, don't stop kind of thing? Yeah, I think the uh, I mean, so getting back with with your doctors, uh, following their recommendations, um, definitely is a a foundational piece. Um, Getting as physically active as as your stroke will allow you to be um, is also a a key element of of staying healthy. Most patients who have a stroke have not been as physically active as they need to be. Um, And so trying to really make that part of your lifestyle going forward is, I think, important. And then uh, the third I would say is um, uh, is um, you know being aware that it's easy to reach a plateau in your recovery and mentally pushing through that. Okay. Um, and that there really you know doesn't have to be a limit on your recovery. I guess that was my thought: is that you, as a doctor, when you see some of your patients come in, you know, post stroke a year, two years, three years, let's say, um, and you see that they didn't quite get as far recovered as you would have thought they would have when you saw them originally or something like that, what do you see as the problem as to why some stroke survivors don't reach that pinnacle that you would have predicted they would have reached when you saw them early yeah. on? Uh, I often tell patients that the hardest part is after you get out of rehab. It feels the hardest when you're sick in the hospital and then the rehab when you're first getting back with some you know, early mobility, but the hardest part is after you don't have anyone waking up in the morning mm-hmm. to say it's time for therapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you really have to drive yourself to be self-motivated to get that extra bit, uh, that's there for you, mm-hmm. um, uh, once you're out on your own. And so 
trying to find ways to stay self-motivated, whether that's uh, coming to a support group where you mm-hmm. can you can co-motivate each mm-hmm, other, which mm-hmm. is a great idea, um, or or you know setting a goal for yourself that's getting back to something that you want to do. Um, I think is the best way to sort of continue on on the recovery and so, be aware that there are plateaus mm-hmm. and that sometimes that's the body's way of telling you to take a short break but not stop. So mm-hmm. take a break for two or three weeks and then regroup. Your body will have adapted to some new gain you made and then you have additional opportunity to, to move up from there. How do you know when you reach those plateaus? Uh, it's all, it's difficult for any doctor to tell you that. Mm-hmm. I think you patients usually know that mm-hmm. uh, themselves. You just don't uh, see much really more good, improvement or something. Yeah, and, yeah. Or or what you were doing before isn't making as big of a difference mm-hmm. that you feel after, say, a therapy session or. So then, when workout. you reach that, don't get discouraged. Yeah, and maybe take a break. Say mm-hmm. maybe I should take a break mentally. I need one, mm-hmm. and then after a few weeks, go back, and mm-hmm. your body will have adapted to its new baseline, and you can then identify a new goal to work on after that so you know everybody listening that's kind of an interesting point in that there is some level of recovery that doesn't happen really not because it just wasn't going to happen it's kind of because you didn't make it happen really you kind of sat back and just kind of watched things go by a little bit and didn't kick yourself in the tail enough to really stay at it and you maybe could have squeaked out a little more recovery and still can if you just push a little bit. And, and it's it's much easier for me to say than mm-hmm. for 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 all of you to do. But um, but I think it's it's something that that you can address. You know that you can work on. Well, and that takes me to my next thing because you know as we go to close here, you know these guys have heard me say it many times to people who sit in that very chair that you're sitting in right now. Let me ask you: Is what did you want to be when you grew up? When you were a kid? Uh, I actually want to be an architect. You want to be an architect. Yeah. That's very cool. Why did you, were you like good at drawing and stuff like that? Yeah, I like drawing and uh, and uh, I like sort of uh, sort of feeling like I could do a, a roadmap of something hmm. I knew is, and then I like to build it. Uh, okay. so a lot of Legos and things like that. And so, when did that change? When did it go down this path? Uh, so, um, actually, the the year between my junior and soft uh, my freshman and sophomore years of college, uh, I needed extra money to pay tuition. I painted houses. Uh, I spent a summer in the hot Ohio sun and I figured out that I better put my head down and study. Doctors and make a lot of money. So I'm forget this architect. <laughs> I can come here, doctor. <laughs> and I just figured out I needed to, uh, to do what I really liked. And I, it was around that time. I, I knew the brain was the thing that I wanted to study. Well, I'm going to say this and everybody knows I'm a crier and I might very well cry when I say this, because one thing that's really blown me away in the midst of this little one year and two month journey that I've been on is that there are people like you who wanted to be firemen. They wanted to be an architect. They wanted to be an actor. They wanted to fly to the moon. They wanted to do anything other than be a doctor. And for whatever reason, you know, lightning in a bottle struck and you said, you know what, I'm going to become a doctor and I'm going to become a doctor that's going to help people in the midst of a stroke and help them get their life back and everything else. And I say this to you, as I've said to several other doctors that we've had on here, therapists and everything else, you did not have to choose this job. You could have chosen to be that architect and be out here designing buildings. But instead, you're sitting here in this room, you're talking to 
stroke survivors. You're talking to many through the phone, to the microphone, hundreds of people listening, thousands listening to you right now. Talk about a level of knowledge that you chose to learn that you didn't have to learn. And you did it unselfishly because you wanted to help other people and help their lives. And I got to tell you, Doc, I appreciate you so much, man. I mean, I was blown away when you gave that lecture, you know, a month or so ago. And I knew then that I had to have you on the show because I've got listeners that needed you. They needed you and what you've learned. And I just thank you so much for the time that you've spent to become the doctor that you are. Because, again, you didn't have to. But it's because of, I mean, we're thrust into this. I mean, we have to be stroke survivors because we are. But you did not have to be a doctor that helps us, but you did. And so I just really thank you on behalf of other people that you're going to help all the patients that you've helped already and everything else. I thank you for taking the time to be so selfless in the midst of helping us when we are most helpless. So thank you so much, Doc. Really, thank you. Thank you, Christopher. I do it a hundred times over. So very happy to do it that's because you're a rock star man I appreciate you so much Um, thanks for coming on the show and everybody um, we're going to have some information on the strokechannel.tv website where you can get in touch with Dr. Hinman and find out more about his Pisces 3 study and all the other stuff that's going on with him and um, in the midst of that you guys you know just know that as usual you know we love you guys we're here for you guys and as I always say there is still a beautiful life after stroke This has been a recorded program of an actual stroke support group. The comments expressed are the opinions of the participants and not necessarily the opinions of the producers, sponsors, or the broadcasters of this show. This program is not to be used as a way to diagnose or treat any medical condition that you may have. Please consult your doctor or healthcare professional before making any changes to your current medical routine. Life After Stroke is a production of the Hang On to the Dream Foundation, the 501c3 nonprofit organization that helps kids and adults reach their goals in life. If these Life After Stroke programs are helpful to you, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to the Hang On to the Dream Foundation to assist the organization in its numerous outreach activities. For more information, just go to www.hangontothedream.org. And remember, no matter how hard things seem, hang on to the dream.